Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, good morning. I I want to say it's nice to see you. Thank you for being here today, every single one of you. I uh, especially echo what Pastor Eric said earlier. My heart was really warmed. I felt like I had a bunch of voices just preaching the gospel at me as we sung. Um, So I hope that translates into some measure of preparation to preach his word this morning. Americans spend a lot of money on preserving legacy. And if you don't believe me, you'll notice if you drive near O'Hare Airport in Rosemont, there's a sports card memorabilia show as proof I got to go yesterday. And what a sight it was to see just rows and rows and rows of card shops and thousands of people collecting cards and exchanging and buying because they think something is valuable. So they're coming in with their valuables. Who knows the millions of dollars that have already been transacted this weekend at the memorabilia show. Memorabilia really has to do with um, people and things that have reached the status of valuable. And so people whose careers and and legacies are valuable, their cards, their signatures, their memorabilia sell, and they sell for great quantities of money. And yet there are those who hit the bottom of the pile. I'm guessing the majority of somebody who's played in sports, their stuff isn't worth as much as others. Now, if we were all honest with each other, of course, most of us here don't have playing cards. If you do, um, hook me up with one, all right? Um, But we all probably have a fear of being forgotten, a fear of being forgotten by our fans, like our family, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors. Let your body lay in a grave long enough, and you will become forgotten. You'll become irrelevant. I have a quirky, perhaps morbid uh, tendency to go walk near into the cemetery near my house um, on, on an occasional walk, and most of the people there died such a long time ago, they mean nothing to me, practically speaking. And so we all kind of carry this load, in a sense, of who's going to remember me after I'm gone? What can I do to avoid becoming irrelevant to the people after me? And I think our talk today in the book of Kings is going to help us answer that question. So I want to preach to you today from the book of 2 Kings chapter 17. If you have a Bible, please turn there or scroll there on your device to 2 Kings in chapter 17. I've simply titled the sermon, How to Become Irrelevant. Before we dive in, let's pray one more time. 
Lord, we sung earlier about weak being made strong, so I confess these are weak lips, weak thoughts coming out here. And I'm sure, Lord, we all to some degree have weak ears to sustain the listening to a Bible monologue. So, Lord, would you strengthen um, these preachers' lips and strengthen our ears to receive your word and open our understanding to understand the Bible better, not just the contents of the Bible, but the very center at the very person, the Son, the Son of God. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I believe 2 Kings 17 teaches us this. I'm just going to say this and emphasize it over and over. That if you fear anything other than Yahweh, God, you'll be irrelevant forever. So with only four more sermons to go, I know some of you are like gasping for breath at hearing 2 Kings and 1 Kings. We have four more sermons after today. We come to the end of an era, to the end of the northern kingdom in 2 Kings 17. Remember, um, Israel is a divided kingdom. They started off as one, and then they split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The majority of the tribes of Israel were with the northern kingdom. And really... The northern kingdom's legacy, if you will, becomes of very little value, can I say even irrelevant, except to warn people in the future to don't be like them. So here in 2 Kings 17, we have less story and more evaluation. Think of it as a, as a brief, as evidence. The evidence of kings indicates that, one, worshiping God worshiping God improperly. This is one reason why there is no more northern kingdom. And two, appeasing God insufficiently. You have these two put together, and that's what lands you in the trash heap of obsolescence, of irrelevance. So in verses 1 to 23, the writer of Kings teases out the northern kingdom's inappropriate or improper worship of God. It starts with this guy named Hosea. Now, Hosea, whose name is like Joshua, all right, which is, that's kind of what Jesus' name was, you know, translated into Hebrew. Hosea was the lesser of evils, if you will, in the northern kings, and they were all pretty much bad boys, all right? But it says in our text, and we'll read it here in a second, that he wasn't as bad or evil as the others. But what happens here? is really the accumulation of decades and generations of kings kind of dogpiling on this last king. And you get the sense that this guy is shouldering a burden of bad reigning by himself for nine years. And then what happens is that he gets imprisoned and the whole country, the whole nation of the northern kingdom is deported. And so they become like a pool drained of its water. The northern kingdom is emptied of all of its inhabitants. And they're marching on a 10-day march to what is modern-day Iraq, um, towards the north part of Iraq, never to return. So this section, verses 1 to 23, is like a spiritual rap sheet of the northern kingdom. Why did the northern kingdom die? How did their capital city get sacked? And here the evidence is overwhelming. I will read verses 1 to 23. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, 
Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he, that's Hosea, had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. By the way, that was considered an act of rebellion. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, placed them in Hala, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the lands of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced." And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they, that's Israel, did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers, the warnings that he gave them. They went after false gods and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. And remove them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the ways that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight 
as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. What does all that mean? It means that Israel had a worship disorder. And it means for those in the 21st century and all the centuries in between, that this isn't just a story to poke fun of these ancient people running around in robes and sandals in the Middle East and say, oh, too bad, what knuckleheads? No, we are supposed to read ourselves in a sense, into the story. Because we have worship disorders too. Namely, what was going on here was that Israel was worshiping either, they were either worshiping the wrong God or they were worshiping the one true God in the wrong way, which is a break with the first commandment, the 10 commandments, you shall have no other gods beside me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You worship the wrong God or you worship the right God in the wrong way. God has specific ways that he wants to be worshiped. And ancient Israel was guilty of breaking both the first two commandments. And in a sense, that led to their transgressing all of the commandments. And like his Judean counterpart that we heard about last week, Ahaz, Hosea, whose name means Yahweh saves, ironically. Hosea goes to the Assyrian king Shalmaneser. And Assyria was the kind of the superpower at the time. They were trying to take over as much as possible. Hosea basically goes and hands Shalmaneser money, makes an arrangement, and basically asks, will you save me? He, whose name means the Lord saves, is selling, in a sense, his name off to somebody who really cannot save him. See, Hosea sought refuge in someone other than Yahweh. This is, you might say, wait, did you, are you copying Eric's sermon from last week? Yeah, sort of. It's the, same, it's the same thing is going on here, except two different countries. Hosea, though, was angling for self-preservation. He was just trying to save his neck. So he'll pay whatever to whoever, but he didn't, wanna, he didn't wanna stay under Assyria for very long. So what he does is he skips a payment to the Assyrian you know, um, IRS and pays and looks for help from Egypt, another nearby ally. This is all silliness. And, and the prophet Hosea, okay, this is a book of the Bible. Hosea has a line in there and he's living around the same time. And he, he just hits it on the head. He says this, Ephraim, which is like a moniker for Israel. Ephraim is like a dove. What are doves? They are silly and without sense. Calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. So the word is out that this Hosea is just a silly king seeking in refuge in somebody who cannot really save him. And one of the indicators of us, of you, falling into permanent irrelevance, let's bring this home now, is that you sell yourself to whoever so long as it benefits you. Now, you might not actually pay money, um, say, to, to people, 
but often things are done with money and transacted with money. We do this a lot. And what did that get Hosea? When he tried to cut ties with, with the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser found out, and here's what he did. He, he binds him up and he throws him in jail, and we never hear from this Hosea again. Now, this is interesting because it's coming at the end of the book. Judah, Judah had almost the same fate, but Judah's king Jehoiachin is in Babylon in jail, but then he gets called out of jail and he's given uh, this, this ironic twist of a fate. He's given a, a place at the king's table. He's given an allowance. He's given new clothes. He's, he's given all of these things, which indicates us. It kind of tips a hat to the fact that the promises given to the line of David through Judah are going to continue. I mean, the books of Kings, if you haven't found out already, it's really dark. And it just feels like the, they're drilling new deeps into the sewer system of darkness. But for the northern kingdom, this was it. The light goes out. No more for northern kings and the northern kingdom. These last words about Hosea and the land of Samaria nail the coffin on the northern kingdom. Israel would never exist like this again. And so for a period of two to three years, kings in jail, deported, Assyria just keeps beating on Samaria, on this northern kingdom, until it takes over. People are deported, which we see in verse 6, to probably what's modern-day northern Iraq. That's like a 10-day, I did a Google Maps search. That's like a 10-day walk. So the land is emptied. So if you want to be forgotten, if you want to become irrelevant, negotiate your way into the good graces of someone perhaps more powerful than you, who not only will protect you, but maybe if you get in their good graces, they'll fast-track you into power and relevance. And see, now that for us is relevant. Because sometimes what we do as humans is we give ourselves, money or no money, we give ourselves to those people who have power. Why? So that we can have power. So that we can have influence. Because there's nothing more, at least in the human mind, self-assuring than having more power, more money, more influence. So you didn't have to live in B.C. 700 to reckon with this truth. This is, hits right here at home. Sell yourself to anybody for your benefit, you will lose your soul and you will become permanently irrelevant. But he goes on. A surefire way to get God legitimately angry with you is by becoming hospitable to false deities. All right, so I, I mentioned two concepts there, the idea of anger. So let's, we're not going to read this whole passage again, but just to show you where I'm getting my thoughts from, in verse 11, notice there at the end of the verse, it says, and they did wicked things, what? Provoking the Lord to anger. And then in verse 17, you got a double whammy at the ver end of verse 17, Okay, but they burned their sons and daughters in their, as offerings and used divination and sold themselves to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Verse 18, therefore the Lord was very angry. 
okay? It's not just merely that God got angry at people who literally burned their children and sacrificed their children. This was, a, this was bad, but that's not entirely the only reason why God got angry. God's anger had been building and building and building. So instead of, which the modern mind, our modern minds tend to think of, well, if there is a God, we would like to think that this guy is loving, right? We don't like to think of an angry deity, an angry God, because all we need is love, right? But if we don't have a God who is legitimately and righteously angry, then we can't really have a God who's legitimately and righteously love. This shows, if anything, that God was very, 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 very patient. Don't don't get all messed up on the God of the Old Testament as an angry God. This is... This is the God we see in the Old Testament. And then you go to the New Testament, and now we get a little softer, uh, kind of precious moments. Jesus, whose heart is soft towards us. No, God has been that from beginning to end. But see, Israel became hospitable to false deities. And where I'm getting that, I mean, I, I can't read them all, but verse 7, verse 12, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, talk about them serving other gods, bowing down, making idols. Okay? And you want to get God legitimately angry with you. Just, just serve other gods. Make other gods. Make idols. Now, we're a bunch of sophisticated Chicagoans sitting here, most of whom who probably, you know, don't have actual idols made of stone and statues and gold or whatever in our homes or outside of our homes. But we make idols in different ways. They become the figments of our imaginations. And then, in a sense, we play around with these figments in our imagination, and we fabricate whole realities around these idols. And because we've done that and spent so much time and effort into concocting these idols, most of the time they come in the form of love, sex, money, power, influence, security. We end up bowing the need to them. And that's one way to get God legitimately angry. But I want you to notice in verse 15. It says there, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and warnings that he gave them. And look at this. They went after false idols and became false. This is not the first time the Bible is saying this. You'll see this in the Psalms. You see this played out in the prophets. It's what one scholar has called, we become what we worship. And this, we all have this tendency to become what we worship. What we, can, using the words of the text, the last half of the text, what we fear, what we respect, what we spend time thinking about, what we dedicate ourselves to. That's what we become. You worship your family? You worship your children? Well, that's what you're going to become, a worshiper of your family and your children. 
Read and heed. That's, what it, that's one thing you're supposed to take away from. Read the story and heed. And don't be like these people who fabricated the figments of their imaginations because their legacy ended up being completely irrelevant. You get God mad at you by being hospitable to false deities. I want you to notice in verse 15, it says they, they went after false idols and became false. That word there, false, is the word that you see just peppered all over the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes has this word called hevel in, in Hebrew, which some translations use it as futile, vanity of vanities, worthless. And that's what it says. If you chase after anything but God, you become worthless. You become futile. You become irrelevant. You worship God improperly and provoke his anger by ignoring his messengers as well. Look at them, verse 13. So you had indicted them on several charges of hospitality to foreign gods. But he sent, but what does God do? Instead of like frying them and doing away with them right away, he sends, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah, what? By every prophet and every seer saying, this is the basic message of what prophets did. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers. You'll provoke God's anger when you ignore his messengers. And why did, why did Yahweh put up with people for so long, a people like this? If you created something and it wasn't really functioning and serving you well, what do we typically do with those kinds of creations and things that we make? We throw them away. We take a sledgehammer to them. We have that creator right. And God could have done that. He actually did do that in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 with his creation. He did destroy it once, and then he went recreating it, and that creation went bad. And you see this happening throughout Scripture. But God is so merciful, and he knows the human heart. See, so... When God sends prophets, or we call them messengers, to warn you and call you to repent, you know there's still mercy for you. And so why wouldn't you turn? If I'm standing up here and telling you today that you have committed acts of idolatry in your heart that God knows about, maybe not many other people know about, and I tell you today, you need to repent of your idolatry. You need to stop serving the gods of money and security and fame and fortune and all of those things that grab your attention and keep you occupied. You would need to repent. Not because I'm anything. I'm just the spokesman for God. You will provoke God's anger and you will continue to worship God improperly erroneously, by just ignoring his messengers. And this is where, in God's providence, we read Romans chapter 1 earlier today. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to hold my place in 2 Kings 17. God knows the human heart. And Romans chapter 1, I feel like, is like a map that just reads the story of kings right here. Let's look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile. 
in their thinking and foolish in their hearts. Their hearts were foolish hearts were darkened. Boy, that sounds like Hosea. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is what humans have done. Generation after generation after generation. We can't see God. Doesn't seem like he's answering our prayers. The pressure is on for me to believe something that the world is telling me. I think I'm just going to go with that. I can see people. I can, I, I hear the messages. I, God, not so much. So let's just make some things to sort of replace him and sort of substitute for him. That's what's happening. They exchange the glory. So what does God do? There, there's a, one phrase repeated three times. Verse 24 from Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Friends, this is not just, you know, uh, updated language, you know, the New Testament versus the Old. This is what was happening in the Old Testament. And this is what people have continued to do. This is what we do in Chicago or wherever we live. We exchange God's glory. And God sends prophets. He sends truth bearers to say, no, don't do that. That's not right. Turn to God. Repent of your sins. It'll be better if you do. Oh, no. I'm a sophisticated urbanite. I live in the 21st century. I mean, that's, that, that's old religion. And surely we, we, we've evolved. We've got something more here. We've got the internet. Everyone's their own truth. Everyone can speak. And we become that. We believe that stuff. And you know what? The most dangerous, one of the most dangerous foreboding statements of the Bible is right there in Romans 1, where it says, God gave them up. In Kings, I think it's in verse 14, it says that they despised God. And then later on, later on in verse 20 or something, it says God rejected them. Did you know those two words are the exact same words in Hebrew? So here's a universal principle, a universal truth. Is all that's happening here in Kings and in Romans is that God is just letting people go their way. You want to go do life without me? Go ahead. Go for it. I'll let you. The reason why any of us are sitting here today able to hear the Bible is, is because God is merciful to you. It's not special that you're hearing this particular person preaching the Bible, but that the truth is being spoken and that you're hearing it and that you're able to receive it. And now you're responsible. Don't turn away. Don't lean into your idols. Then Romans continues. See, I think we like to, I think as evangelicals like to highlight verses 26 to 27 because it's so clear on anti-homosexuality. And yes, it is. But let me tell you that there are many people who aren't necessarily in the profile of, in, of homosexuals that have this fate. Keep going. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
Like what? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. I mean, it goes on. Gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruth. I mean, this is just a, 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 a brief profile the kind of people that God just says, have it your way. I'll let you go to your own destruction. So when God sends prophets to warn you to repent, what a mercy. But when God gives you up, time and mercy have run out. You are headed for the eternal trash heap of irrelevance called hell. Yes, there is that place. And we speak of it not because we're mean and proud, but because we all deserve to be there and to go there. And God is saying, repent. Time's running out. Turn from your idols. Turn from your other gods. And note how the writer of Kings wraps up this explanation of verses 1 to 23. In, verses, in, in verse 19 and 20, he lumps Judah, the southern kingdom, into this, okay? Remember, you know who's, who's reading this? There's no more northern kingdom. The only people reading this who are Jewish are the southern kingdom people in Babylon, in exile. It says, now the rest, whoops, wrong. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of all the descendants of Israel, and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And if you're hearing this by the rivers of Babylon, you, you can't play your music anymore, and you hear this, and you're thinking, Oh, that's why we're here. It wasn't just our northern brothers, it's us too. And he reminds this first audience that though the northern kingdom had started circling the drain to irrelevance with Jeroboam, you see that in verses 21 to 23? This wasn't new information. He's packaging it up. He's saying, this started about 200 years ago when you guys split and this new king, Jeroboam, he didn't want people to go to Jerusalem and worship, so he set up a, a new religion, gods that were convenient to get to and worship, and you guys have been going south, not literally south, you guys have been circling the drain ever since. And though God let this go on for hundreds of years, he was patient. But generation after generation was characterized, verse 14, by unbelief. They did not believe God. They rejected God, and God rejected them. Now, if you fear anything or anyone else but Yahweh, the one true God, you're sure to become permanently irrelevant. You have no legacy, nothing worth remembering. And so the second indicator that our text gives us that you won't last eternally is in verses 24 to 20, 41 of appeasing God insufficiently. Now, with the land of Israel in his possession, a serious king, his name is Shalmaneser, what does he do? He repopulates the promised land, not with Jews, with Hebrews, but with pagans. 
So let's see how Assyria's foreign policy affects the religion of the promised land. We'll read 24 to the end of the chapter. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim. And he placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria, they don't know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them, and behold, they're killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. And the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel, it's a northern city, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived the men of Babylon made Sukkot Benot. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. These also feared the Lord and appointed them among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high priests. So they feared the Lord Get this. They feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, according to the former manner, they do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law of the command or the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them. But you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandments that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies." However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations both feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they did to this day. What we have here is new people. Now, for those who read the New Testament... Here we have the beginning of the Samaritans. Remember how the, the Jews in Israel during the, in the Gospels did not like the Samaritans. They spoke very poorly of them. This was the start of what became Samaria, of the Samaritan race. All right, it, it, it evolved and developed over the several hundred years in between before Jesus came. But this was it. it they were crossbred. They were bringing in other nations to populate the land. That was the foreign policy. And what happened? This is so curious. They get in, they're starting to settle, and they say, well, we've got to worship our God. So they start doing it, and what happens? God sends lions to kill some of them. All right, okay, something's going wrong. They were, they were superstitious enough to think that, okay, the God of this land that we just, you know, inhabited, there's something, we're, we're not doing something right. We need to be 
We need to be taught. And so what do they do? They hire this, this, this priest, they, they bring him back, and he teaches them the ways of God in Yahweh. Now, what does that matter for us? When it comes to appeasing God insufficiently, you can't appease God through mere education. And that's what they hired him. Maybe if we get some more education, we won't, we won't be killed anymore. We'll, we'll appease the, the God of this land. More education. I mean, this attempt by the Assyrian colonizers, it was sincere. And even maybe more than Israel had been attempting before. But education wasn't going to fix it. You can't appease God and satisfy God by becoming more knowledgeable. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowledge is important. But we see all throughout Scripture people who had knowledge of God. Even demons have knowledge of God, and they fear God, but that does not send them to heaven. So education won't appease God, nor can you please God by rolling out programs of toleration or conglomeration, which you have in verses 29 through 33. So in verse, uh, so they're, they're teaching, and it says there, the men of Babylon, they, they bring in all their gods. In verse 32, all sorts of people as priests are hired and put in high places and they sacrifice. So it's Yahweh and it's all these other gods. Wow. Now, get this. What's essentially been happening, what's happening here is that the land goes full circle to what it had been before the new nation of Israel occupied it. Remember when Israel left Egypt? They came to the promised land, but they had to purify the land of the people there who were idol worshipers. Now, a thousand years or so later, the land became what it used to be. And by the time the book of Kings is heard, only Judah exists. And you see this phrase, to this day. The land that we used to worship God in is now run by Neo-Canaanites. Who would have thought? And you know, for us sophisticates here, left to ourselves, we will welcome almost any and all solutions to dig us out, to dig us out of our pickle, to make God happy. For, for, for some of us, to be related to God is more like having a, a monkey on your back than having a father. What, what do we do with monkeys on our back? Well, unless you're one of those who makes it onto cable, um, most of us would get monkeys off of our back. They're to be appeased, to be ran from, to not have. And if that is your view of God, as somebody who, is, who exists merely to pacify and to keep happy, I'm telling you, you are on your way to permanent irrelevance. I'm not going to leave you here, though. And when Israel is sitting in the misery of exile and irrelevance, when you're thinking through your whole family history and you see the family tree of Israel and you're thinking, oh my, I come from a, a, a line of serial idolaters. What hope is there for me? My land is now occupied by more idolaters. What hope is there to reverse this curse of inevitable irrelevance from going into oblivion? 
And it really boils down to answering the question, the opposite question is how can we worship God properly and appease him sufficiently? See, the key to being rescued from our inevitable crash course to permanent irrelevance is to fear only God. Look at verse 39 here of chapter 17. You would not think that maybe the answer came within this text, but you get all these like very, uh, these phrases from the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 39 says, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. If you long to be saved from the hand of your enemies, then you must worship and fear only God. And friends, the sooner we come to the end of ourselves, to the end of our sufficiency to worship only God, we discover the capacity of another person's righteousness. When you think about the story of the Bible, let's say you're God. Let's say you You're dwelling in eternal bliss, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You decide to create. You create this world, and in a matter of time, it goes bad. And then a few hundred years later, you call out this pagan idol worshiper, and you make him a a worshiper of you, and he builds this family, and you give him promises. And you're, you're headed to this land God's people, God's place, under God's rule, in in God's land. And then what happens to those people? Broken, bad, lost. It seems that everything that God has created to date, the world, the nation of Israel, has been divided and disintegrated into irrelevance. And then you got to ask, here's the big question. Did God fail? If you're in Israel reading, hearing of your, the debauchery of your ancestors, you're thinking, you're thinking, wait a second. God, you did this. You, why did you let this? Why did you create a world only to let it go to waste? Why did you choose this blessed people only for them to be deported and no more? God let this happen. Why? Here's why. So that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's Galatians 4.4, meaning that God had to inhabit the same limited form as us, human, born under a woman, through a woman, Ain't a one of you here today that came into this world any other way. And that's how Jesus came into the world, born through a woman, born under the law. And it wasn't just the laws that were stipulated to Moses 1,500 years before. It was the law stipulated to Adam in the garden. Somebody had to pay for all of that transgression. When Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, They thought they were getting life, but instead they got death. And death, disease, damnation, disintegration has been the human story. It's been the human legacy ever since then. 
So Jesus comes in the form of a human, as a human. He resists the tempter. Where we have failed, where Israel failed, he succeeded. When he was being opposed by Jews, by Romans, by Gentiles, he sought refuge not in the Pax Romana, but in the Father. And not only did he keep every law to the letter and in the spirit, Jesus subjected himself to the greatest act Roman forces could come up with for the most despised and irrelevant of society, a cross. Jesus experienced the shame of exile, deportation, if you will, from the Father's presence. And he was buried in a tomb. The book of Romans says he was raised again for our justification. The most important thing that you can do today, beloved, in response to this whole story is to bow your knee in repentance to Jesus and start serving him and him alone. Hosea 10.12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Why? That he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And if you want to become forever relevant again, my friend, then come to the only one who can restore that to you. None other will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that None of us would be lost on all the strange names and customs, but that, the, that our, our depravity and our need for a Savior would just scream at us right now into repentance, into, into true saving faith. Lord, I pray that you would do what I could not do in preaching your word, that you would preach a better sermon than I ever could have. Anything that was perhaps an error or irrelevant, be forgotten. I mean, the deep relevance of the gospel sing over us and in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.